Thomas Carlyle was a controversial Scottish philosopher and historian. He lived most of his life during the 1800s and was a highly influential thinker and scholar of his day. Now, he adopted some, some kind of suspect views that, as they played out over the course of his life and his study, became really a little bit wackadoodle-doo, I think it was the technical academic term that you would assign to Thomas Carlyle. But, like I said, he was a fascinating cat and incredibly influential in the day and age in which he wrote, which my, many of you probably know that. Um, for example, he was extremely influential in the life and the work of Henry David Thoreau from America. It was his history, Carlyle's history of the French Revolution that provided the basis for Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities. And just by way of curiosity, I want to ask you a question. How many of you read A Tale of Two Cities? Let me just see a show of hands. Fascinating. Okay, that's great. I want to ask you one more question. How many of you were supposed to have read A Tale of Two Cities? Okay, we've got a few honest people in the house. You know, the only thing I remember from A Tale of Two Cities, I remember guillotines, and it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. That's all, and after that, I got nothing. But I remember that, and it was based on Thomas Carlyle's history of the French Revolution. But it was a different historical hypothesis for which Carlyle is probably best remembered. Carlyle proposed that all of human history really pivots on the actions of a select few heroic historical figures. And Thomas Carlyle labeled this phenomenon what he called the great man theory. And essentially it means that there were a few great men throughout history. And you have to remember this was the 1800s, so women were, were largely consigned to the sidelines of history. And it was, a, it was a horrible, horrible slight, but with a few glaring exceptions, it really and truly was a man's world in that day and age. But the reality is that Carlyle proposed that there were just a few, few great men who propelled human history forward after studying the lives of, of Oliver Cromwell and Napoleon, uh, Shakespeare, Muhammad, uh, Martin Luther, and, and, and others. He said that there are just a few select men who were born with the metal to make things happen, with the wisdom to turn the world's gears forward. And... and he even went so far as to say that the rest of us are just kind of sitting around waiting for one of these great men to show up. He said that the great men were as lightning from heaven, and all other men waited to be ignited by them. Now, i got to tell you something. As what I like to consider as a fairly normal dude, that's a little bit offensive. I mean, I don't think I'm alone in saying that, you know, I think there's something inside all of us that would love to say, you know what, I'm a, I'm a great man. I may not be Napoleon. I'm taller for one. But I'm, I'm, I've got potential within me. And, and that's actually the essence of this series that we started last weekend. Come on, man, that, that men and women alike would call out of men to be who God's created us to be, to do what he's created us to do, and, and to convey the image of God as men he created us to be. And we said at the very beginning of this series last week, we're not striving for political correctness, we're striving for biblical correctness and, and an understanding of what is in the heart and the soul of a man. Now, Carlyle's great man theory has been 
pretty much discounted by historians ever since his day, largely because of the, the really significant role that circumstances and other things beyond any great person's control play in shaping history. As a matter of fact, if you push Carlyle's great man theory to its ultimate conclusion, you really run into another guy by the name of Thomas Jefferson. Remember, Jefferson was the one who wrote in our Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And so if all men are created equal, then the reality is somewhere between what Carlyle proposed and what Jefferson proposed. But I want to suggest to you this morning that Carlyle's view actually deserves a second look. I, I want to suggest to you that Carlyle's perspective on humanity deserves a second look, not because of the role of great men in history, but because of the role of all men in God's story, in the fact that God has created all men and women in his image, and that in the context of the gospel. If we were to filter this great man theory through the saying of biblical masculinity, we would actually arrive at an incredible, phenomenal, beautiful relationship between men and women. That, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no competing, there is only a beautiful, complementary completing of the image of God that we were created to convey. And so when we call out of men the best that God has placed in us, we actually serve women really, really well. When we call out of men what God has placed in us, we serve this world. Our world is dying for men to be men, for women to be women, and the clarity and the peace that comes with that. And so to get at this, you'll remember we started last week with the story of David, and we talked about the buildup in last week's message to one of the greatest one-on-one -on -one duels that the world has ever known. I'm talking, of course, about that classic conflict between David and Goliath. Remember that one? Remember, let's get ready to rumble! The giant versus the runt. The big dog versus the underdog. The boy from Bethlehem against Goliath from Gath. Remember, this was going to be a complete complete mop-up. Goliath, nine feet tall. His armor weighed 125 pounds. The tip of his spear was 15 pounds. And here comes David with a slingshot. Here we go. It's really almost comical when you think about it. But when you pull back and look at it from God's perspective, there is so much power in this story of this conflict. I want you to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17 where we left off last week and just remind you of David's mindset, David's heart set as he enters this conflict with Goliath. Remember what he said, he, he, he'd come to the front lines of battle not because he was a soldier but because his father had sent him on an errand. He, he said, just take some bread to your brothers, they're the real soldiers, you take some bread and then come back home. And while he was there, he heard Goliath taunting the armies of Israel. He heard Goliath mocking God Almighty. And when David heard Goliath mock God, the, the, the hair on the back of his neck kind of stood up and, and he, kind of, he kind, of got, kind of set his jaw and he was, he was aggravated. He was provoked. 
you, you want to know what a man's really like? You want to know what a man's really like? Look at what he'll fight for. L- look at what makes him angry. Look at what he fights over. That will reveal volumes about our character. This is where David was. And he said, I'll take him out. This is David, little little adolescent young man, boy, amongst soldiers. He said, well, I'll take him out with the sling. And this had been going on, this taunting of Goliath before Israel for 40 days. And so when David shows up and says, I'll, I'll take him out, well, he's immediately summoned to the tent of Saul, the king of Israel. Saul says, who is this boy who says he's going to take out Goliath? Bring it to me. And so David comes into the tent of Saul, and, and Saul kind of looks at him. He goes, now you, you, have to, you have to put yourself in Saul's sandals for a second, okay? Because in this day and age, warfare and battle, it was just kind of, it, it was the name of the game. You and I live incredibly, incredibly soft lives. These people went to war at the drop of a hat. People were incredibly expendable. And so when David walked into Saul's tent, Saul's like, all right, knock yourself out, kid. I mean, nobody else is taking him on. If we lose you, no big deal. I got some real soldiers that I need to hang on to. But I want you to see what David said here. 1 Samuel 17, 37, he said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Remember, David, up to this point, had just been a shepherd for his father, Jesse. He had just been out tending Jesse's sheep and goats. As a matter of fact, when the prophet Samuel had come to Jesse's house, prompted by God to anoint the next king of Israel, God had just told Samuel, it's one of Jesse's boys. And so Jesse paraded. Can you imagine? You want to talk about, I mean, we, we talk about Lonzo Ball in the NBA right now. I mean, Jesse, his, here his boy, his, his boy is going to be king. He's thinking, man, big baller brand number one, here we go. And he's, he's bringing through boy number one. Lord says, not that one. Boy number two, not that one. Boy number three, not that one. This goes on and on and on. None of them were the king that God had selected for the next king of Israel. And finally, Samuel said, Jesse, it's none of these. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse looks at the prophet, panicked, and he says, no, oh, wait. Well, I do have one more boy. There's one more son. He's out on the back 40. We don't even feed him very often, but if you want to see him, I'll bring him. But he ain't king material. But do you remember that Saul had been told by Samuel, God will remove the kingdom from your household because he has sought out a man after his own heart. And that was David. That was David. David, who was, he was faithful in the little stuff. Just, just out back, tending dad's sheep and goats. You want to talk about a, an unglamorous, unsexy job? But it was while he was out back, tending dad's sheep and goats, that David developed some skills. He, he, got, he got good with a sling, you know, we think of a slingshot, pew, but this was one that you, you twirl. It was two long pieces of probably leather, and you let one end go, and, and the stone or the projectile, the rock would fly out of it, and you, you would hit 
the predators who were trying to take away the, the sheep and the goats. And as a shepherd, you had to be good with a sling. And, and David was just very, very faithful in the little stuff. And just real quick, as an aside, can I, I just want to say this to, to any students, anybody who's, who's maybe still living under your parents' household, there is so much power in this principle. If you will be faithful in the little stuff, whoa. I'm, all the rest of us, just say, whoa. whoa. I'm telling you what God will do in your life and through your life, if you're faithful in the stuff that doesn't make any sense right now, if you're faithful and submissive to your parents' God-given authority, if you're, if you're faithful and you do your best in school, I know, I know, I'm not that old, I remember. But I'm telling you, this is a universal spiritual dynamic law that never changes. You don't have to like it. I'm just telling you, it's true. Watch what God will do. The rest of us will be like, man, that's, look at what God's doing with her. Look at what he's doing with him. Your parents will be like, that's my kid. I'm just telling you. And that's what David did. And so he comes to this moment with Goliath. Everybody will face a Goliath moment. As we said last week, nobody lives a Goliath-free life. We all have battles to fight we all have giants in our life it's a part of the human condition ever since sin entered the world we live in a broken and fallen world and so we're going to have to fight giants sometimes they're going to be of our own creation sometimes we create giants because we make stupid choices sometimes the the giants just just happen but because we we live in a fallen world but everybody gets to face a goliath the question is, are we going to be faithful in the little things so that we're prepared for the big things? It's the little stuff. It's the little stuff when nobody's watching. David was out back with, with Jesse's sheep and goats. Nobody was keeping tabs on him. Every now and then they'd send somebody out to you know, make sure he was still alive. But more importantly, they wanted to make sure that all of the sheep and goats were accounted for. Nobody was around. Who you are as a man, who I am as a man, reveals itself when nobody's around. When, when, there's, when the lights aren't on, when we're not hanging out with other people, when we're not at church on Sunday morning. I mean, we come to church on Sunday, cleaned up, brushed teeth, smiling, hi, good to see you, brother. No matter what happened in the car on the way here with the kids. But this is the laboratory. This is, this is a moment that God gives to us for encouragement. We need a safe place. That's why he's given us each other. And so we gather together, and, and this, is, this is a safe place to do it, and it's great. But we leave here, don't we? I mean, we, we, we go out back out into the real world. We, we go back out into the rugged plains of reality, and we go back out, and, and, and it's back out there that we're reminded that we reveal who we are when nobody's around. David, when nobody else was around, he was developing his skills. David, when nobody else was around, was writing some of the most beautiful worship music ever composed in the history of humanity. He, he became a warrior and a poet in the presence of God on a regular basis basis 
And so when he came to his Goliath moment, he was ready. Check this out. Verse 38. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. Now, this is a funny moment in the Bible. This is hysterical, actually. Because here's David, a young boy, adolescent. And Saul, we know from the Bible that Saul was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the nation of Israel when he was anointed king. So Saul was a big dude. And he gives David his helmet. (laughs) Comes down on his head like a salad bowl. Then he puts on his his armor, his chain mail. And and Saul being as big as he is and David is little, it doesn't doesn't fit right. So it's kind of, it's like he's wearing his dad's suit, you know. And and then he puts on Saul's sword, heavier than any weapon. He's, he's, He's used to carrying a shepherd's staff. And a, and a sling or maybe a club, but it's never as heavy as the king's sword. And, and he puts all this stuff on and, and he's standing there before the king and his advisors and counselors and, and he goes, and it's just, it's just awkward, it's painful to watch, kind of like that was. Can't you just see Saul's counselors standing around the edge of the tent going, this is not going to go well. Saul, this is going to be a political nightmare. Saul's going to be blamed for the death of this young boy, and it's not going to matter that he gave him his armor. So it's it's a funny moment, but, but tucked inside the comedy is a, is a spiritual law that transcends millennia. And the spiritual law is this. No man will ever fulfill God's calling on his life trying to wear someone else's armor. No man will ever fulfill God's calling on his life trying to wear someone else's armor. If you are going to be the man God created you to be, if I'm going to do what God's created me to do, I got to put on my own armor, Jack, Jackie. I have got to be willing to step out of other people's suit of armor. What I'm talking about is other people's expectations. If you're living your life trying to satisfy your dad's expectations, or, or maybe even worse, and, and you may not even realize it, what if you're, if you're trying to live your life to satisfy and quench your dad's frustrations with his life, or your mom's, or a coach, or a teacher, or anybody else, you will miss the indescribable joy that comes from fulfilling the reason God created you. you got to put on your own armor. And the only way that you figure out what armor to put on is if you spend time with God. It's only when you put on the full armor of God that he has designed for you that you will fulfill the calling of God in your life. Women, girls, mothers, daughters in the room, Whatever you can do to get your man suited up in the right armor, do it for your own selfish interest. If for no other reason, you just need to step back and go, honey, I, that looks a little snug on you. I think, I think you, your shoulders are so broad, you need something different. Whatever it takes, 
You help your man step into who God's created him to be. Women, I cannot describe to you the power that you wield in our lives as mothers, as wives, girlfriends. I'm just, I'm just saying. I have a very good friend who lives in, a, in another town, and I was talking to him this past week, and I was asking him how his boys are doing. He's got two boys about the same age as, as our kids, and he was telling me, giving me the rundown. He said, man, so-and-so has got a girlfriend, and we love her. I said, how long have they been dating? He goes, only about two weeks, but we've seen a noticeable improvement. <laughs> I'm telling you, it is universal. You can't wear somebody else's armor, men. You've got to step into what God created you for. That's what David is doing here. He, he, he puts Saul's armor aside, and then check this out, 1 Samuel 17, 40. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. And then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Can you imagine what it would be like? I don't know. We don't know specifically how old he was, but he was young. Let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say maybe 14. 14 years old. And he's got a slingshot and five rocks stepping out to meet the giant Goliath. That had to have been an incredibly alone moment. But we already know David didn't feel lonely. We already know that he was going for and with God. But look what happens when he gets out to meet Goliath. This is a great detail that the Bible chose to include. Verse 41, Goliath walked out toward David and with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Ruddy-faced means kind of sun-freckled and... and fair skin. Verse 43, am I a dog? He roared at David. Did you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. Basically, Goliath is trying out an auditioning for WWE at this point. He's just talking smack. He's talking smack about David, about Israel, about Israel's God. He's just talking complete smack at this point. But what's fascinating to me is David, even as an adolescent, refused, refused to be distracted. Check out how David responded. David, Goliath called him out and goes, you're just a little punk kid, boy. David replied to the Philistine, verse 45. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and then I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. Here's the principle that David was practicing. God's calling on our lives filters out the distractions 
from our detractors. God's calling on our lives. When you are chasing God's calling on your life, when you are going after this biblical mandate of masculinity, you don't have time for a bunch of talk. David had already started this with his big brother. Remember when he, when he brought the, the food to the battle lines, his big brother goes, sit down, shut up. You just live, I, I know why you're here. You just want some glory. Just get out of here. David was like, you shut up. I got work to do. He, he didn't get distracted by his big brother. And then when, when he put on Saul's armor, he, he wasn't distracted because he couldn't bear it up. He said, this isn't who I am. He, this, is not, this is not for me. And, and then Goliath taunts him. Because you're just a little boy. You're like a dog. And then David says, well, if I'm a dog, this is your worst nightmare. Because the whole world's going to know that you got beat by a dog when this day is over. You got beat by a little boy because God will give us this victory. He said, the Lord will conquer you this day. David refused to let distractions from his detractors keep him from his appointed rounds. And then here's what the Bible says. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. That right there, verse 48, 1 Samuel 17, that's a Monday morning verse. That's a Monday morning verse to memorize and just metabolize tomorrow morning. Not tomorrow morning because it's Memorial Day, but on Tuesday this week. Next week on Monday, run to the battle lines. Verse 49, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. Boom! And then the Bible says that David took a sword and cut off the head of the Philistine and put it in his trophy room or something to that effect. Every man in this room will face multiple Goliaths throughout our lifetimes. Everyone. And if, if we are faithful in the little things, the little things that God puts in front of us, how we spend our time, how we fight for our faith. By fighting for our faith, I mean we fight to carve out time every day to just talk to God, to, to read his word, to internalize it, and to pray. To, to fight for our families. If you're married, you fight for your wife. Not with your wife, for your wife. You fight for her. You make sure she knows and feels that your Greatest priority is to help her be the woman God created her to be. As I said to the women earlier, men, do it for your own selfish interests. I'm telling you. You've got to be willing to fight for your children. You've got to be willing to make your children's spiritual welfare your number one priority as a parent. It's great if they learn to hit a hanging curve. It's great if they can make the travel soccer team. But if they're not invested in the house of God, if they're not part of the church, we failed. We failed. We've got to fight. 
the currents of our culture that tell us it doesn't matter. Church is no big deal. It's a big deal. Well, you're the pastor. You have to say that. Let me tell you something. That's true. I'm biased, but it don't mean I'm wrong. I'm not a, I don't love the church because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because I love the church. The church saved my life when my family blew up. That was a long time ago. And I got to tell you, I'm tired of watching dads let their families slide into spiritual oblivion. I'm tired of watching it. Men, fight for your families. It's too important. And you can clap for a principle of God, but dead gummit do something about it. I love you too much. And our children need this. They need it, but they will follow your lead every time. Every time. And I know, by virtue of the fact that you're here, I'm preaching to the choir. Choir. But I've heard that not everybody is a part of the church every week. I've heard not everybody goes every week. I don't go every week, and I'm fairly committed. But you need to be a part of it. I need to be a part of it. You fight for your family's spiritual welfare. If they don't know God, but they make the volleyball team, who cares? Who cares? You have any questions? That's rhetorical. He's given us this gift, but we have to fight to take advantage of it. We have to fight to experience it. We live in a world that runs absolutely countercultural to everything that God has prescribed for us to live the life that is truly life. And it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. So I'm curious now. If we were to, to go around the room, how would you define a great man? How would you define a great man? It's an important question. I have a suggestion. And my suggestion is not really my suggestion. But it, but it goes to the words of the greatest man who ever lived. The man who is God. The God who became man, Jesus. And, and it was Jesus who said, greater love has no one than this. That he lay down his life for his friends. A great man lays down his life. The final determinant of greatness is our willingness to sacrifice. To sacrifice. 
as Jesus sacrificed, to love as Jesus loves, to lead as Jesus leads in grace and truth. That's a tall order. But this is our calling. So come on, man. Will you bow your heads with me for just a moment? In this moment, I want to just present something to you very, very simply. And that is the fact that Jesus is the greatest man who ever lived because Jesus sacrificed the most. He chose to give his life up for you, for me. To die on the cross and to rise again. So that we could, yes, be forgiven of our sins. And yes, spend eternity in perfect relationship with him and each other. But also, so that while we were here on earth, in this life, we might live the life that is truly life. And so that sacrifice deserves, that sacrifice demands a response. You can receive it or you can reject it. But the one thing you can't do is sit on the fence. If you're here today and you're tired of sitting on the fence, or or maybe you've just discovered this reality, this truth, we want to give you the opportunity to receive the amazing grace of God, to step into a relationship with Jesus by just praying right where you're sitting. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer as, as an example But if God's leading you to respond to his grace and step into that relationship, you pray with everything you have, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. It's a once and for all prayer that begins a relationship, a relationship that is day in, day out, moment by moment, choice by choice. If that's you, you pray. Just something like this in your own words, silently right where you're sitting, just pray and say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And I give you my life, all of it. I will follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment. It's a sacred moment. But if that was your prayer and you meant it, this is the greatest moment of your life.
And it's, it's too important to leave here. It's too important to not ask for, for help in growing from this moment. And so that's, that's what the church is for. It's why we're here. We're a family of faith, far from perfect, far. But we're available, and we're here, and we love you, and we want to help. So just real quickly, before you leave, if, if that was your prayer, and you prayed to commit your life to follow Jesus, and first of all, that's awesome. Congratulations. Second of all, I want to ask you to fill out the Connect card that's in the program that's in your hand. Just fill it out. And about halfway down, just to indicate that I committed my life to Christ this week. Once you've completed that, just tear it off at the perforation. And before you leave today, just hand that card to one of our ushers, one of our hosts. And that'll begin the process of a dialogue that, that'll happen at your pace, what you're comfortable with. But we're available and we want to help. And then the second thing, the third thing really, I'm going to ask you if... If that was your prayer, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand high over your head and stamp this moment in your life. Just make sure that you know this is real. This counts forever. And you stamp it in your life as you stamp it in the life of this church. Because for us, you know, Jesus told us to pray and said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the Bible tells us that when one person, even one person, turns for home, all of heaven celebrates. How cool is that? And so since we commit to do everything we can to make life on earth as it is in heaven, we kind of feel like we ought to celebrate too. So as you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. <laughs> welcome home. Welcome home.